0: Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 10. Challenge Quotes, relevant to Chapter 10, nominated by Alf Studdart, Brisbane, 1974. John Keats, poet. Over the hill came the bow-legged man. William Shakespeare, playwright. Forsooth, What manner of man is this who cometh over yon hill, carrying his privates in parenthesis? Keld to Wreath, Eleven miles, six hours. Arthwaite's breakfast was special. The hotelier was alert to the vein-clogging danger of fried food. Out of consideration for his guests' tubes, a stomach-soothing spread of stewed prunes and lightly poached eggs was available had I listened carefully, I believe I could have heard my inside sigh with relief at the prospect of a fat free start to the day. However, the mere thought of cleansing prunes was too much for some. Peter's stomach trouble left him long-faced and unable to eat, whilst the more fortunate of us moved in for second helpings. Before setting off that morning, the ordnance survey map of Wainwright's coast-to-coast path, which covered the section St. B's Head to Keld, was packed away and replaced by the map showing the Keld to Robin Hood's Bay sector. Map replacement was proof indeed that we had reached the halfway point of our journey. From Keld, there was little doubt that we would make it to Robin Hood's Bay, provided we avoided accidents or the much-hailed, drumpfeltish, unknown, unknown. When Peter and I had agreed to walk the coast-to-coast path, my motivation was one of rising to the challenge of walking further than I'd walked across country before. Having reached the halfway point, I felt quite different about our adventure. The initial idea of a challenge had long since evaporated and been replaced by something liberating and vital. The expected test of endurance had given way to a splendid simplicity of being. As the days ticked by, I developed a taste for the roving gypsy life that allowed limbs to hang loose and made walking easy for the first time in decades. I was beginning to remember that unencumbered delight of being truly alive as a free spirit. The idea that personal happiness was to be found in simple pleasures was holding true for the three years since I'd accepted voluntary redundancy from work. I'd been moribund as though waiting for something to turn up. And finally, as with Charles Dickens' character, Wilkins Micawber, something unexpected had occurred. A truth, buried deep, had been rediscovered to free up my mind. Several times in the high country, beneath a dark, torn sky, where the winds tugged waterproofs tight, I'd felt a presence that whispered, Live, laddie, live, whilst you can. When I was working, my suburban life in Brisbane was fine. I followed a rigid clockwork routine that started at five in the morning and finished when I arrived home from work at six in the evening. My house was merely a place to sleep and store my gear, and a studio where I painted in the evenings and at weekends. All the separate activities that made up my life were fine. It was the whole shebang that left me feeling restless and discontent. On retiring, even though I had plenty to do, and spent extended holidays away from home, I felt ensnared by my possessions, and imprisoned in my house by Brisbane's whiplash sunshine. It was time for something different, and a trek across the north of England was acting as an agent of change. From leaving Keld, Peter suggested taking the alternative, more picturesque Swaledale Valley route, rather than Wainwright's elevated trail over Gunnerside Moor. The high-level trail passed through countryside ravaged by 2,000 years of lead mining and is strewn with slag heaps, ruined mine buildings, and rusty machinery. The valley route, on the other hand, is considered by many to be the most beautiful and unspoiled vale in the British Isles. With Peter still off colour, the decision required no input from me. The trail followed the north bank of the Swale River past the Kidston Force waterfall and through the thick wood of deciduous trees whose luscious green leaves bore witness to autumn's late arrival. The far bank, lying at the foot of the brilliant white cliffs of North Gang Scar, offered a foothold to perhaps the best known long distance walk in the British Isles, the Pennine Way. Ant-sized figures following the Pennine Way lent scale to the towering cliff face. Kell is the only place where the best walk in England and the best-known walk in the British Isles merge. Like many in competition, their meeting is furtive and brief, with no outright winner evident. In Australia, I generally rise with the sun to make use of the coolest part of the day. An early riser's bonus is to be around when the birds sing and tussle to re-establish their territory. In Britain, milkmen and postmen seemed to be amongst the few to stir from their beds in time to hear the early morning birdsong. In keeping with the local custom, we also were late to enjoy the dawn chorus beneath the trees that lined the bank of the river Swale. In truth, that morning, I'd been up with the larks at the hotel. The wild twittering of a flock of birds roosting nearby had woken me whilst the cloud streaked sky over the eastern hills was still sunrise pink. We entered the Orchardales along a narrow limestone valley, criss-crossed with stout drystone walls, which enclosed lush, grassy fields. The region is famous to people worldwide through James Herriot's books and the TV programme All Creatures Great and Small. Dry stone walling has a long history that extends back to the early Stone Age. The Celts were master builders of dry stone walls. The heyday for dry stone wall construction in Britain was between 1760 and 1845, during the enforcement of the Enclosure Act. During this period, the aristocracy and landed gentry drove the poor off the land and into factories for a life of misery and industrial slavery. In the Yorkshire Dales, it's difficult to believe dry stone walling is a dying art, as it is in many parts of the British Isles. Mile upon mile of magnificently maintained walls stand as a monumental testament to the skills and techniques developed by the Celts, whose gifts persist to this day in the safe hands of farmers, hobbyists, and national park rangers. Many walls are works of art that beautify the rural landscape, The internationally renowned landscape artist Andy Goldsworthy has employed dry stone walling methods in many of his creations. The action of wind, rain and most specifically frost will eventually bring his sculptures down if they are not maintained. Even though none of Andy Goldsworthy's works were located near our path, we were constantly exposed to stone creations of great artistry. We couldn't have ordered a more perfect day to be in the Yorkshire Dales. It was bright and sunny, with high scudding clouds and a warm breeze. Along the valley floor, our way was obstructed by a series of stone walls running back from the river bank across the path. No doubt the arrangement was made to ensure animals in each field had access to river water. The local farmers had devised an intriguing variety of style, which would give man passage whilst containing animals within their separate fields. The Swaledale style is an elegant design that does not challenge gravity as most styles do. No energy is wasted climbing over walls using built-in steps. Instead, two slabs of stone set vertically into the wall provide a gap through which people may pass by shuffling sideways. Animals' passage is denied by small gates across the gap wainwright alerted bow-legged trampers to be wary of the swaledale style as they might find passage through the narrow gap a rather undignified operation ivelet and gunnerside are villages that were once run-down lead-mining communities which have been revitalized into charming flower-boxed hamlets whose inhabitants commute to nearby towns for work The only disturbance of the tranquil atmosphere of the deserted showpiece villages was from a pack of mountain bike riders in hot pursuit of the leader. The muddied cyclists had become strung out on the hilltops amongst the slag heaps and disused mine shafts. As for the village residents, they didn't appear on their sun-kissed doorsteps to cheer the riders by, but remained as invisible as agrophobic suburbanites rabbits were the only wildlife to be seen in the swaledale valley that day a bank of steep ground below everlet heads is a veritable bobtails high rise the honeycomb of burrows had undermined the bank causing the earth to slough away in great folds the valley teemed with rabbits that bounded to safety when we appeared on closer inspection the fields were strewn with dead and dying rabbits that had succumbed to myximatosis there is little doubt that the rabbit population must be controlled so they don't out-compete domestic farm animals for available food however the appalling sight of wretched half-dead rabbits making a pathetic attempt to hide was truly shocking one of the most agreeable features of the coast-to-coast walk was the friendly feelings which the locals and hikers share there was nothing but affability between us and the locals we met when entering the village of Gunnarside, the closeness to the locals took a physical intimacy not experienced elsewhere. The main coast-to-coast path passes between the walls of two cottages and along the garden paths dividing the front lawns. The fact that more than 10,000 walkers pass between these private houses and their unfenced gardens each year stands as clear testament to the tolerance and goodwill of all concerned. We arrived at the lively market town of Reith by mid-afternoon and made straight for the Black Bull. It's a traditional country pub in which for hundreds of years overalls and tweed trousers have polished the oak benches smooth. The pub is well situated with a splendid view across the wide market square and over the village green to the Swaledale Valley beyond. Even though we were deep into Yorkshire the afternoon drinkers retained a soft way of speaking more reminiscent of the west coast and places further north than the typical yorkshire brogue so familiar from radio and tv our overnight lodgings were down a secluded lane just off the village square we were welcomed like the lord of the manor and his entourage returning home after a long absence the whole household lined up to greet us in all there were the elderly parents a son in his forties and a man in a wheelchair and the most important member of the household a giant white cockatoo wearing a domed cage that was several sizes too small by the time the usual domestic chores were completed we were ready to engage in the serious business of food and drink back at the black bull we were joined by jeff the bearded yank we'd met on the first day out of st b's he was an academic from the west coast who should have stood as a presidential candidate if his conversation was anything to go by he knew all the answers even though he might not have heard the questions in the early hours of the morning wreath was as silent as the dark side of the moon however when the big finger of the local village clock reached twelve the still of the night and the luxury of sleep may be surrendered to the clock's desolate chimes the hourly toll and the mighty deluge of rain left me wide awake bleary-eyed and grumpy fortunately the mind-numbing monotony of a formula one motor race action replay on television soon had me back on a walkabout in the dream-time